We're here. We're going to open the Word of God today. We're in Acts chapter 19 today. So we've come a long ways. Means we're only 10 chapters away from Acts 29. There is no Acts 29. Uh, <clears throat> so we saw recently that Paul was in Ephesus and he left. And when he left, he said, God willing, I will return to you. Um, well, this is the moment when God does indeed will it. He returning, he's returning back to Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. Uh, this is a big city he's going to. In fact, it is the fourth largest city in the empire. Um, it was a center of commerce, and it had stone buildings, which was kind of unique at the time. And in fact, it had this huge theater that sat about 25,000 people. Uh, that's a lot of people. That's more than the, the soccer stadium in Kansas City fits. And uh, it actually, most of that, sta- that theater is still standing today. Uh, so now before we, we read this, I want to remind you of one thing here. Um, just because it kind of came to my mind in the sense of we've so professionalized ministry today that I think that many who are not in vocational ministry, uh, not pastors, not campus pastors, things of that nature, uh, you feel, fail to realize that you and your life have a ministry. So you don't need a, a logo. As much as I like logos, you don't need a logo uh, or a 5013C status to have a ministry. All you need is to know Jesus yourself um, and thus love God. And you need to know others, and, and thus the opportunity to love neighbors. So, uh, you know, the question is this. When you start to evaluate, you know, do I have a, a ministry in my life? Um, do you know Jesus as your Savior? And do you know someone other than yourself? And I hope that's true. If not, talk to me, and then you'll know someone. Um, but, but the reality here is that that's a wonderful thing, because that means that you have a ministry. Um, the people that God has put you in contact with, that you interact with, that is uh, a, a ministry in your life. And, and I tell you that because I want you to understand when we read about some of the things Paul's doing, this is not just for pastors, okay? Uh, it's for you as you minister in, in your life. Uh, so let's look at Acts 19. We're going to start with just the first uh, seven verses. We'll end up looking at the first 20 in this chapter today. Uh, but follow along, Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, we know that all Scripture has been breathed out by you. And so we also know that it is true of this text before us today. Make us humble to receive your word. May we find restoration at this moment from tired minds and anxious hearts. Lord, would you stir in us an interest to learn what your word has to say today, simply because it is indeed your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So like we said, Paul's return to Ephesus. This time he's actually going to stick around there uh, for three years. 
And, and this was a city that was, was hugely significant in its, in its place. It was along both sea and land trade routes, and so people were in and out all the time. Um, and it was a large, you know, large place. At this point, when Paul's there, it had begun to decline a little bit economically, and eventually that will be its ruin, but not for a very, very, very long time after this. Uh, it was also a destination for many pilgrims who were traveling there. The, the Temple of Artemis is there, and they'd come for idol worship. Uh, and early on, when, when Paul's there, he runs into these 12 disciples, right? And, and he learns that they've never, ever heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the passage, and I mention this because there is there, uh, some within the global church who will look to this passage and, and say it supports this idea that Christianity exists in, in two stages. Uh, and, and they would present it this way. The first stage is where someone comes to believe in Jesus or have faith in Jesus, and then, and then later there's a second stage where someone would receive the Holy Spirit. Um, that's not what this passage teaches. And, and that's, not what Christian, that's not true of Christianity at all. You see, when these men are talking to Paul, they are not Christians at all. Remember last week, we, we saw Apollos, right? And, and he had received only the baptism of John as well, but, but he had also been instructed in the way of the Lord. There was more that he knew, even though he hadn't had been rebaptized at that point. You see, these, these men know only what John the Baptist taught, which was this preparation for the coming of Jesus. It was looking forward to a Savior. And so their knowledge thus far was, was directed towards just, you know, general repentance, and they were looking forward to the, to the death and the resurrection of Christ in, in a very real believing type way. But, um, but the fact that they don't know that the Spirit has come, you know, at this point. Um, in fact, uh, they may know that the Spirit was supposed to come and was going to come but because John the Baptist actually prophesied about this event in, in Luke 3.16. But they're not aware that it's already happened. They're like someone waiting for a bus that's already left. Uh, and so they're, they're unsure of what's going on in this regard. So uh, they lack the mark of genuine faith, which is this presence of the Holy Spirit in, the, in them. Um, and so these men were certainly seeking the truth. They were, and that's one of the reasons we see so quickly that when they hear it, they receive it. And they receive the Holy Spirit. See, previously they were, they were disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, now at this moment, they become disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is an a, a event, though. We look at this, and it's one of those things that's really strange to us. You know, we see the, the tongues and, and the coming of the Spirit in this regard. Uh, this event is like an echo of uh, Pentecost. You remember, that's the first time the Holy Spirit comes, comes to them and, and, and uh, is sent and, and is, resides in believers and comes to them in that regard. Uh, but here also we see that they do. They speak in tongues, right? And they prophesy. And, and as you know, Sam mentioned a long time ago, early on in Acts, the, this is a unique era in the church history. Uh, we won't go into all of it here. We don't, we don't know all the details here, right? We don't know what tongues was like. We know that back in Jerusalem when they were speaking in tongues, what it was was, was foreign languages so that everyone could understand. But here in Ephesus, that would absolutely be unnecessary. You didn't have the same mixture of, of languages. Um, but having come this far into the book of Acts, we have seen that uh, what we see here is not the normal pattern of conversions. In fact, most of the conversions we see in the book of Acts, even in this era, mention nothing of tongues. In fact, Paul's own, own conversion, even as he engages the Lord Jesus Christ personally on the road to Damascus, never mentions anything about tongues. Uh, so, again, these men here are first-generation Christians. They are the first in their households to come into the covenant community, and they have not been raised in the covenant community. And so they receive the sacrament of baptism uh, following their profession of faith. Uh, 
people from, from time to time will ask, you know, uh, across our, our presbytery even, you know, the question of should I be rebaptized? And they'll have some idea, you know, maybe I should be rebaptized. Um, and, and the reason for this is maybe uh, I was baptized as an infant in a church that has some really funky theology, or uh, they were baptized as an adult and found that, you know, they didn't take their, their faith real serious for, for a period of time, and now they're wondering, should I be rebaptized? Uh, typically, our advice is, is no, you shouldn't get rebaptized, uh, provided your baptism that you received was a Christian baptism, meaning it was in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's because baptism is not a sign of, of what we do, is it? It's a sign of what Jesus has done for us. You know, just as we receive faith from the Father, we receive baptism. And the reason these men here were rebaptized is simply because their first baptism was not a Christian baptism. It was not in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, so let's, let's look at the next three verses. We'll move on, verses 8 through 10. Follow along in your Bibles in front of you. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Greeks or Jews and Greeks. So three months he's in the synagogue. To put that in perspective, it's basically all of 2016 at this point. Um, you know, that's... Uh, and it says here, you know, Paul was spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading. So what does it mean to speak boldly? Does that mean anything to you when you hear that phrase, to speak boldly? I think sometimes it, it helps to start with the opposite of a word to really understand it, you know. And the opposite of boldness is timidity, uh, to be timid. You ever, you ever find a snail and, and pick it up? At least in your childhood, most of you are too old to do that now, probably. But you, uh, you find that snail and you pick up that slimy thing and you're, you're analyzing it and looking at it. And, and there's that weird alien-like finger that comes out of its head and there's an eyeball on it and looking around. And, and what is the thing you just can't resist doing? You want to reach out and touch that eye, right? I'm not the only one who does this, right? Um, and, and you go to touch that eye and, and what does it do? It just it darts back in immediately, right? And it's gone. That's timidity. See, the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we believe, does not need to be timidly shared like a snail's eye because it's strong and it's powerful and it can withstand the poking finger of skeptics and all who will analyze it. So there's no reason to be timid about this. Another thing here is this, this ministering to, to others boldly does not mean that we tell someone everything we know the minute we meet them, right? You know, hi, my name's Brian. Let me tell you everything about Jesus right now. And then I'll let you take my order. Um, you know, that's not what, we, what it means. And boldness is certainly not rudeness. Unfortunately, a lot of people have confused us to think that boldness is when I am a jerk and I mention Jesus in this. That's not boldness. It also isn't just pointing out what's true, but rather boldness is a willingness to point out what's false when that's necessary. You know, think about it. You know, what do you say when Bobby tells you you know, God is so loving that he just forgives everyone on the planet no matter what. You know, boldness asks that question mentally. How do I correct this untruth in a way that's gracious? And boldness means we actually give a response. 
You know, boldness sees Bobby as someone who needs to know the truth and is willing to speak up to lead Bobby to the truth. You know, Bobby, why do you think everyone on the planet is forgiven of their sin no matter what? We're in this era of church right now uh, in history where, where it seems that boldness has been replaced with silence under this banner of tolerance. You know, maybe we need to be reminded that it's okay to, to draw a line on an issue even when you know that it's going to be looked down on, when a biblical view is going to be looked down on. Because to agree with culture on a moral change or a moral issue is, is really not courage. To agree with God and his word on a moral issue when the culture is going to disagree with you, that's courage. See, what we've got to learn is how to stand with Scripture while still being humble and gracious. Which is why we, we see in this text that Paul is reasoning, right? He's reasoning and persuading others. Reasoning means that we insist on actual reasons. That's a big deal. You know, as much as we might find the question, why, annoying, particularly when like a little brother or someone keeps asking it over and over and over again, it is a good question. And so when reasoning and dialogue with someone, we, we want to move them down the stairs of this, this thought process, right? Down the stairs of the building and, until they can come down and they can see the foundation and they can see that their beliefs are either built on the solid rock of God's word or that that foundation is weak or lacking altogether. You know, shifting sand is not a good foundation. Somewhere along the way, though, we, we began just kind of generally accepting now, as reason, statements that begin with, well, I just think that, no, that's not a reason. We all do this. I find myself doing this. Well, I just, I just think that it would be great if it was true. You know, some, you know we think, okay, if you think it should be true. Um, it, it, where did we start thinking if we thought it would be cool if it was true, that it must be true? Something like, I just believe that, you know, God created lots of eternities. In my eternity, uh, everything is cute, and there's no Starbucks, because that's a corporation. And in your eternity, the Cubs actually win the World Series. That's Travis's. The bigger question is, you know, is why when we hear that argument, you know, our, our first objection is like, I kind of like Starbucks, or the Cubs winning the World Series sounds more like hell. Uh, <clears throat> rather than something like, what are you talking about? You know, uh, when we're reasoning, we want to give reasons. That simple. You know, I, I believe that the central focus of eternity will be the glory of God. Okay, great. Why? Well, for a lot of reasons. I'll just give you one, though. Revelation 21, 23 says this. God is speaking. He says, And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it. And the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb reasons. And, and so reasoning is when we help others to understand why they believe what they believe. And, and personally, it's giving a reason why we believe what we believe, which means that we should always go back to God's word for all the questions of life and faith. Uh, you know, after all, that well-known text in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.15, uh, it's quoted often, and it calls us not just to profess that we do have faith or hope in Christ, but to be prepared to give the reason for that hope. Remember that verse? I'll read it for you. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And it keeps going. Don't forget that. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So how does this reasoning and and persuading work for Paul? Because I think we could fall into the pragmatic idea of if it works well, then we do it, but that's not exactly how it always goes. Um, For Paul, some were persuaded, um, and others began to speak evil of the way. Remember, the way is just a word for Christianity early on. Um, And so a lot of them were speaking evil of the way. But again, some were persuaded, and they go with Paul when he leaves the synagogue, and he goes and he sets up in this hall of tyranness where he's going to begin... teaching and preaching and discussing and dialoguing with people. Uh, it's just a place that they end up meeting in. And, and Paul, you know, faced this defeat in the synagogue, and rather than just crumbling in depression, depression, he moves on and he rents his public space and he continues to minister boldly. And, and so let me encourage you in, in this before we move on, how we engage in evangelism. I, I think sometimes we think of evangelism as um, I meet someone and, and I just start talking about Jesus and, and then I see how they respond. And that's terrifying, right? Um, and, and it is that, right? But, but it's also, you know, don't underestimate the value of, of questions. And what I mean is this, um, you know, ask God to give you genuine care for other people. I mean, it could be a prayer of just a general prayer for people I meet for people in your office, people who drive you nuts, whoever it might be that God has put in your life, and then just start asking these people questions because you actually want to know about them. So did you grow up going to church? Oh, why'd you stop going? Do you believe in God? I mean, do you think the Bible really is God's word? Uh, do you think Christians are judgmental? What's the most important thing in life? How, how do you decide what's right and wrong? I mean, how do you think through that? Are you afraid of dying? Any number of questions just to get to know another person. You know, ask these questions because these questions begin to open up dialogue that leads us to reasoning. And that rarely exists in our culture today. But I think you'd be surprised how willing people are to discuss their ideas, their beliefs with you uh, when you are bold enough to to just non-threateningly ask questions. Um, You know, don't be afraid to lead people into meaningful conversation. Okay, so we got one more section of this. Uh, it's 10 verses long. This is a strange, strange verse. Um, I was telling Travis this earlier this week, and I tried to convince him that maybe he wanted to preach for me. Um, in fact, more than once this week, I was just kicking myself for not having Ryan or, or Sam preach this text instead uh, when they preached a few weeks ago. Uh, you get Mars Hill, I get... So. Anyway, you know, and here's why I say that. I, I don't mean to be negative of it. I, I say it because there's this, this PR, you know, public relations part of me uh, that wants to make Christianity just seem normal to people, uh, to secular minds, you know, to want to, to just skip this text altogether. Let's go on to the next one because it's pretty cool. Um, but we can't, and, and we shouldn't. And, and really, deep down... I don't even want to really skip this because it's God's word and it's not the word that needs to change. It's me, right? When we come across some of these texts that seem strange to us, it's us that needs to change. And I, and I say it's a strange text because all of the book of Acts, all of scripture deals with the supernatural, but this passage is just saturated with the supernatural, which for us as modern Americans, we, we tend to have the biggest struggle with. 
Because we, we understand invisible, right? The air is invisible here. And, and we understand material even better. I can touch that. Um, you know, most of us at this point know that radiation cannot be detected by any human senses. But we have Geiger counters. And the Geiger counter tells me that there is radiation in a room if there's radiation there. Um, or uh, when I put on hand sanitizer, as, as Berkeley calls it, hand sanitizer, uh, you know, it, it disappears in my hands. And, and I don't know what happened to it, but I'm told that along with the hand sanitizer also goes 98% of the germs. Uh, and I have struggled to believe that, but I'm trusting scientists when they tell me that they have tools that can measure this and confirm, you know what, 98% of the germs are gone. Um, I wish we'd get rid of the other 2%, but that's another story. Um, so when it comes to like angels or, or demons existing and, and being in a room with us here, we have no device to detect that. You know, there's no app for that. And it sounds a lot like myth or fiction to us. You see, when, when reading uh, in the scripture about invisible creatures, um, that's kind of creepy to us. You kind of want to look around the room, right? You wonder, are they, are they here now? Um, sometimes our cat will attack nothing, and I wonder if she sees demons. <clears throat> and, and I mention all this because while you might struggle with the supernatural, let me encourage you that the same scripture, the same scripture that reveals to us that God has sent his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin, also tells us that we live in a world that is indwelled with spiritual beings that we cannot detect by the five senses that God has actually given us. Okay? Um, one of the reflection quotes in, the, in your bulletin puts it this way. Uh, the more you take Jesus seriously, the more you have to take his view of reality seriously. And that includes what many call the spiritual realm. We shouldn't think there is a demon behind every rock, but we also shouldn't think that there is no such thing as demons. Uh, so let's read this strange passage uh, about this demon encounter, and we're going to unpack it a little bit. So verse 11, follow along in your Bibles if you've got it. I like you looking at the text. You're seeing this yourself. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a, high, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. <clears throat> and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. <clears throat> so that first part, people are being healed just by Paul's apron, right? Why was Paul wearing an apron? Um, it was a, a tool, something you'd wear while working on building tents, presumably. But uh, <clears throat> so anyway, this was happening. And, and we've got to keep in mind that Paul was uniquely an apostle. 
He was called by Jesus himself to this unique role. And God was healing people through Paul to confirm the words of Paul as his representative. And this information is, is spread, right? That this name Jesus is powerful in the region. And these men learn about it. In fact, these, these seven sons of Sceva, uh, these seven sons were, were basically traveling con artists. Uh, the sort of a business was not uncommon at the time. Uh, there was a greater sense of understanding just the, the mystical world in that regard at this time. And, and people would come to them. Uh, they'd come with medical issues, maybe mental issues, maybe real demon possession. And it sounds a little crazy to us, right? Uh, that's why it's kind of hard to believe this still goes on in the United States today in, in a lot of regards. You uh, might have heard of the, the self-proclaimed medium on TV, a guy named John Edwards, not to be confused with the Puritan Jonathan Edwards. Um, <clears throat> well, this, this medium on TV has become very wealthy, claiming to communicate with the dead. You know, you find a, a room of people and you just start saying general things until you make a connection. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a cell phone and there was some communication and, and someone desperate for closure, you know, speaks up. That's me. I used to talk to my mom on the phone, um, you know, and, and I missed her phone call and she passed away. Ah, yes, it's your mom. I'm sure of this. You know, no, it's not her mom. It's, a, it's made for TV con artistry. And so these Jewish con exorcists, maybe we'll call them, have, have heard of the power of Jesus' name, and so they want to mimic it because they're thinking, here's a powerful name, we use it, and something amazing happens. It's, it's spiritual pragmatism at the most basic level. And I, I hope we learn here that not everyone who comes in the name of Jesus really knows Jesus. See, what these seven sons were doing was, was using the name of Jesus as a means uh, to, to build their own names, their own power, to, to build their own wealth in a lot of, a lot of ways. They, they saw Christianity as a tool for worldly fame and wealth, and uh, it backfires real quickly on them. See, they invoke the name of a Jesus to this man who really is demon-possessed. And I don't know if they expected that. Um, the text literally calls it an evil spirit. Demon's a word we use. Uh, and the evil spirit speaks through this man, and he says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize that name. But who are you? Who are you to use this name of Jesus now? You know, he knows that, that Jesus is the divine Son of God, powerful and mighty, and he knows that, that Paul belongs to Jesus, and that he's a servant of Christ, and that he's protected by Christ. But he also knows that these seven sons are not Christians. They do not belong to Jesus. They are not servants of Jesus. They are not protected by him. And so this evil spirit just pounces like a big cat. You know, it says the evil spirit leaped on them. You think, what does this look like? You know, if you'd been standing in that house that day, here's what you would have seen. You would have seen uh, one guy who was demon-possessed, probably real obviously demon-possessed, uh, fight and utterly destroy these seven sons. Um, kind of like you might imagine in, in some action film, you know, Neo in The Matrix or uh, Jackie Chan in anything Jackie Chan's ever been in. Uh, that kind of picture where it just destroys them. And, and, and they run for their lives at this point. Their clothes are torn off of them. Their bodies are injured. And they're just trying to escape from this. That's what you would have seen. So you, you read a story right, like this, right? And it makes you begin to wonder, why don't I see demon-possessed people today? Or do I? You know, why don't I walk out in the street today and, and find demon-possessed people? 
and we'll bring them in and you can exercise them. You know, I was talking with Christine about this earlier this, this week and, and asking her the, the same question. And one of the things she said was, I wonder if, if demons don't operate differently in different cultures and generations. I think if someone was obviously possessed in the modern United States, it would make everyone take the spiritual realm a lot more seriously than they do. You know, to Christine's point, one of the worst things an evil spirit could do in our culture is to make himself known. Because that would prove there's this supernatural world that we in a materialist culture are overwhelmingly in absolute denial of. You know, we, we learned in Genesis that the devil is crafty, right? Um, perhaps our, our passage today then explains why we don't see demon possessions in our, our culture. You know, when people saw this in, the, in our text, what did it say happened? What was the result of this? Was, you know, demons win and Jesus is squashed down? No. It says the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That means enthusiastically praised. You think that was the demon's plan? You know, uh, showing its power? You think that was the desired results that it was expecting? You know, that's why, why C.S. Lewis once wrote, Satan's greatest trick was, was in convincing man that he, that, that meaning Satan, does not exist. And so while the, the supernatural is real, and evil spirits do exist, and angels exist, we do not live in fear if we're in Christ Jesus, because even so, you know, even with this existing, our redemption is the most secure thing in the world, and so we need not fear. You see the other result of this, this whole thing? Um, there was this willing confession of sin by many new believers. Again, we, we bring our cultural baggage into this text. It's almost impossible to read it without, um, you know, thinking about the fundamentalism that you've seen in the last hundred years where uh, someone says, you know, bring your, bring your Debbie Gibson CD and Thriller or whatever it might be and, and let's burn them. Some of you have partaken in this. And you're missing your Thriller CD and not your Debbie Gibson CD. Um, those are stories of people wrongly applying Scripture. And, and so let me warn you to read this and just forget about that, okay? Leave out that, that history that you've seen in our, our culture. Because what we see here is, is, is an outpouring of public confession. It's a situation where true believers are willingly, uncoerced, confessing their sinful practices. It is voluntary. No one's making them do that. And I've said that three times to make sure you understand that part of it. You know, because often after people come to faith in Christ, it takes a while for them to realize that their old practices in life no longer fit their new life in Christ. And in Ephesus, these new believers are, are seeing that their engagement with, with demons and magic and this, this, this kind of dark arts kind of idea, uh, practicing incantations is wrong, and, and so they come confessing their sin. And part of this cutting ties with this old way of life is just to destroy the, the tools of the trade. Um, you know, when you, when you read this word books here, I, I hope you understand we're not talking bound books like this. They would have been scrolls that you pull out and unroll. Um, and these scrolls were full of names and, and incantations, magic words, right? That were believed to give them control, like godlike control over the world around them. And this burning is then done publicly because many of them have practiced this art publicly. And it's a way of saying, I'm done with this. I want you all to know I'm done with this. And these books had value, but they burned them rather than sell them because they don't want this to be passed on to somebody else. 
You know, and, and that speaks to the inherently evil of the practice itself. It's not just an abuse of a good thing. It's an actual bad thing, evil thing. Um, for instance, if you've got a drinking problem, you might need to give away, you know, you might just give away your wine collection. That'd be fine. But if you've got a pornography problem, you're not giving away that collection. You destroy it because it's inherently evil. And, and that's what's happening here. In this case, repentance costs them a great deal financially. Um, which begs the, the question, right? Is the gospel of such value to me and to you that we're willing to lose something that we treasure if it comes between us and God? Uh, Rosario Butterfield, some of you know her story, uh, puts it beautiful. She ended up walking away from a relationship herself that she found to be un- unbiblical, ungodly. Um, but she said it, it says this, she says, if God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. So finally, we, we see that in this text, what we've seen in many places in the book of Acts already in that last verse, right? The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's been a beautiful scene throughout the entire book of Acts. Every time something comes to try to, try to stop it, nothing does. It just plows on through. And remember, this is, this is Ephesus. You're sitting in Kansas 2,000 years later, and the word of the Lord is continuing to work mightily. Um, the simple application of this text today is, a, I think, a renewed commitment um, to know the reasons we believe what we believe. And that means that we know what God's word teaches you know, when we talk about studying God's word, it's just not for theological loftiness. It's so that you understand why you believe what you believe. You know, may it shape us, not, not just our profession of faith, but may it shape our actual practice of our faith um, with a willingness to remove from our lives that which is inherently evil, no matter how highly we value it. So we can, we can do that because in Christ and in the gospel, we've been given someone, something that is of far greater value both now and for all of eternity. I mean, you already possess in Christ the most valuable thing in the world. We think about, you know, if I only had this or only had that. No. In Christ, you already possess the greatest thing you'll ever possess. The forgiveness of your sins, eternity, a place in the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to grow. If there are those here today who know something of Christianity in the, in the forms of facts and information, um, but have not been willing or able to receive the gospel as their own hope, their own means of forgiveness. If, if they have not received Jesus as their own Savior, would you give faith to believe? Would you give the Holy Spirit, would you give eternal life and security? Uh, for those of us who have been walking the faith for some time now, or maybe a short time, and who may still have practices in our lives that are not compatible with your word, Lord, would you give us strength to remove it? Uh, Not to earn your love, not for fear that we'll lose your love, uh, but because we have received your love. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.